Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hello, everybody. Thanks for being with us today. Today, we're jumping over to the Gospel of John, which is what is in the Revised Common Lectionary, and we are looking at the the beginning, verses 1 through 18. Um, And I want, actually, Alan to start off giving us a little background about the book of John, since we really haven't been in this yet while we've been in our podcast. Well, as, as we all know, you know, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called that because they all follow the same kind of outline of Jesus' ministry. Some have suggested even perhaps less than a year. Um, John's Gospel, on the other hand, um, has a very different presentation. Um, some have suggested that based on John's Gospel, based on uh, some of the feasts that are mentioned where Jesus went up, went up to to. Uh, Jerusalem, it could be up to two and a half or three years. Uh, the other thing is that um, the teaching materials in uh, in the Synoptic Gospels and in John are very different. John has these discourses that are extended, and uh, they sprinkled throughout the Gospel. Um, the bread of life discourse, I am the bread of life. Um, other dis- the 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 discourse after um, after the. Uh, the final meal, um, these kinds of things. And um, so that's another aspect. And then finally, um, I guess one of the main um, aspects of John's gospel that characterizes it is that you have the I am sayings, where Jesus seems to claim a, a closer relationship to God than some people think in the synoptic gospels. I don't agree. I think while it may not be emphasized quite as much in, in the Synoptic Gospels, you do have places where Jesus claims um, just as much of divine authority as he does in, in, in John's Gospel. The other, and then finally, you have the, 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 these, uh, the signs. Uh, there are seven signs in, in the Gospel of John that, that are, um, as John says, intended to reveal uh, who Jesus is and to reveal what he is about in terms of the kingdom of God. And so, but interestingly, the kingdom of God is not necessarily the main theme. Uh, the main theme, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the synoptic gospels is the kingdom of God. But in, in John's gospel, the main theme would probably be more um, eternal life. Yes, exactly. And I think, I think when we come into that, I think when we come reading through the other synoptics, uh, the synoptics and then we hit John, we tend to stay in our same frame, framework. And so I'm hoping then with this understanding that we understand we need to approach this with a little bit different eyes because it's written in a different way. And of course, when you jump in, not to let your eyes glaze over, but this starts very differently. It does. Um, this prologue, yeah. which is what we're, what, we're, what we're digging into today um, very specifically. And so tell us about this. I mean, this prologue almost sounds like a hymn or, or um, some type of a prayer, Christian prayer, maybe... Maybe its origins are a little bit different. Well, and in fact, in fact, many in the New Testament world uh, have have called this a a hymn to the Logos, and um, and some have even proposed that uh, this was something that was that was from taken from the Greco-Roman world. Um, now, you, you probably heard enough of of me and my views. In my opinion, the influence of the Greco-Roman world on the New Testament is minimal. You have a handful of of places where you have clear allusions to Greco-Roman literature, whereas obviously the the allusions to the Hebrew Bible and or the Septuagint Greek translation are just on all over Everywhere. every page. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so I I don't necess- I don't buy into that part myself, um, but you it does seem there's a number of reasons why it seems that the prologue may have been composed, perhaps even after the rest of the gospel as an introduction to the gospel. Um, it's interesting that um, in John 21, 24, there's this interesting statement that, that you know, uh, speaks of, of presumably John, the beloved disciple, 
uh, as the disciple who testifies to all these things. And it says, and we know that his testimony is true. Well, who is the we? Who is the we? <laughs> well, and that, that brings up actually another huge important part of this. Who wrote this darn thing, right? And and I would say that sort of the consensus view is that probably John's disciples. John had a group of, of disciples who are um, um, co-workers or helpers or whatever who've put this into its final form. And perhaps they were responsible for the prologue in, in the form that we have it now. Well, obviously, we're thinking about this early Christian tradition, largely oral um, we have some of the early gospels. We've got letters of Paul. We've got some other things floating around in there. John's gospel is remarkably different in many, many ways. It has it has unique stories. So are we to believe those are floating around kind of in the common world, or are these just unique to, to John? Well, John's experience? it does seem that John has, has access to some unique gospel material. It does seem that is true. 30 years ago, I wouldn't have said this, but now I think maybe there might be some truth to it. Some believe that John is also sort of doing some of his own exegesis on Jesus and and doing some composition of some things. So, for example, the idea that, that the theme in John's gospel is eternal life, not necessarily the kingdom of God. Um, you know, it's kind of ironical to say it this way, but I think John is translating the, con- the Jewish idea of the kingdom of God for people who would not necessarily have been familiar with that concept. And so, and I think he does that as well in terms of who Jesus is as the Christ, as the Messiah, and as the Son of God. I think, and so I think maybe some of some of the differences between John and, and the synoptics may be John's effort to try to um, interpret um, a very Jewish gospel of Jesus the Christ for a more Gentile audience. And it does seem that John's community is, is not located anywhere in, in, uh, near Jerusalem. It does seem that John's community is located in Asia Minor or right. modern-day Turkey. Yeah. Right. So this all makes sense within, within that context that, that we've got some different people that we're talking to. We're talking about a different generation. We're talking about John understanding um, perhaps what has happened to the Christian movement up to this point. I mean, um, if this is largely an oral tradition movement, you've got you're going to have people interpreting, and we know yes. that they did in many yes. different ways. But the so Synoptic Gospels that. interpret Jesus absolutely. Um, they're, yeah. they're they're perhaps a little um, uh, they stick a little closer to perhaps what it would have been the oral tradition of Jesus uh, that came from Jesus. And so in that sense, some might say it's more historical. But one of the things I love to point out to my seminary students is that in this um, more interpretive gospel, we might say, um, you have a lot more specific historical and geographical references than you do in in the um, in the synoptic gospels. It's true. I, I think I think stereotypes for any of these books fail <laughs> ultimately. Right. I think so, too. Well, um, and, and perhaps I'm, I'm moving ahead to the end of our discussion, but it reminds me of the, just the significance of, of gospel and translation in our history, mm-hmm. right? That it's not static. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. And I think John just demonstrates well, that. Well, the well, and there was that kind of translation or, and or interpretation that was, that was mixed into the whole gospel tradition from the beginning because yes. Jesus, yes. Jesus original teachings would have been in Aramaic. Uh, maybe some of them were in Greek. There, I have a, I had a friend and colleague who argued that that there's some sayings that don't make much sense in Aramaic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they only make sense in Greek. So maybe some of them were in Greek, but probably the majority of it was in Aramaic. And and so already when it got translated into a Greek source or into the Greek Gospels, there is interpretation going on there. Exactly. And so uh, I think when we look at, I think our problem is we look at the Gospels and we want them to be like an encyclopedia article that's historically verifiable. And that's not what Gospels are. Gospels are, they're telling the story of Jesus and they're trying to make that story meaningful to, for, to the people that they're telling. So the fact that John perhaps would take some liberties, we might say, with the tradition that he received and compose some stories or, or focus on some themes that are different from the Synoptic Gospels. That only means perhaps that he was trying to make the gospel relevant to the community that he was writing it for. Which is... Which is what we all do every week, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, wow. 
it's it's kind of exciting in a way when when you really think about that it's yeah. there it's 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 um it's really amazing yeah well let's jump then back to our prologue um because we want to kind of break down um what is going on here one of the one of the big pieces in here and is just this whole concept of logos in the greek world and in maybe the the hebrew world so just talk about yeah well, um, in the Greco-Roman world, the logos uh, was understood as the rational basis for all thing or the reason that holds everything together. And I don't think there would be too many people who would hesitate to ascribe a kind of divinity uh, to that logos. Um, and, and maybe John is using logos with sort of a, a um, one eye on, on, on that uh, setting that he was addressing, but I think this in the beginning points us back to Genesis one and and where the word of God <laughs> is the means by which God creates. Just as you know, John says, "By the logos, all things were made." And so there's a there's a clear, I think, allusion back to Genesis one. Mm-hmm. I think people who read John initially would have picked up on that Genesis. Mm-hmm. First, I think they would anybody have heard with, that. Anybody yeah. with any kind of background in the in the Hebrew Bible would right, have heard that. Right, allusion, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's kind of like Mark's gospel. The very first line of the gospel, we know something about Jesus that most of the people who witnessed his ministry didn't understand until later. Right. And that is that he is the Logos. He is the one who is with God. He is the one who is God. And this, of course, is a very strong claim. Uh, it seems out of place if you if you take a superficial look at the gospel, the synoptic gospel tradition. I don't think it is out of place. Um, some have argued, you know, that here we have a highly developed and later Christology that John articulates. But I would maintain that the concepts here, basically, John is just fleshing out concepts yep. that were already found in the first document of the New Testament, First Thessalonians, where in the greeting, Paul places the Lord. Jesus Christ, and it's just assume he is the Lord Jesus right, Christ. Right. There's no argument made for that, mm-hmm. and places him alongside God the Father, and and does it without any need to justify doing exactly. that. Exactly. So I, I mean, and that was you know we believe First Thessalonians was written in the early 40s. So I don't think there's anything in John's gospel that wasn't already there. Already there, yeah. and that's where our reformers are going to be as well. Um, they don't they don't see some separate or or more sophisticated um, Christology. Uh, Christology. Yeah. They really really go and and look at this as just as part of what's already there in the gospels. Like the, now, ironically, the logos doesn't occur anywhere else yeah. in John's gospel. It's only in the prologue. <laughs> So what 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 an interesting thing to think about though yeah. is that such a huge part of our our kind of contemporary Christian mm-hmm. tradition assuming that this is kind of sprinkled everywhere and it's it's really not there, nope. you, there we go it's not yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not good point the prologue does go on to talk about another theme that is it is a major theme in John's gospel and that is light yeah and and what what the prologue says about the logos is that the logos brought light into the world and and the light that the logos brought into the world is life which is also again as i said before that's one of the major themes eternal life in mm-hmm. john's gospel mm-hmm. i think i think what john is doing is he's 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 explaining the significance of of entering the kingdom of god for people who didn't have a background in right. the hebrew bible right. to be able to understand that well the concept of of light is really really huge i mean um it's something we can if, can can relate to in our in our senses we we have a sense of what light is um i do want to ask what is the theories of light within the greco-roman tradition you know i was thinking of some of the uh, uh, mystery religions, you know, they mm. had a lightness and a dark, and a oh, yeah. god of the light and a god of the dark, and and there and there they were, the mystery religions were based and and to some extent Gnosticism, which developed later, right, were both based on this kind of a dualistic world, right, this dualistic worldview where uh, God is pure spirit, right, anything material is evil, evil, and right. so how do you get from a god who's pure spirit 
to a world that is pure evil. <laughs> well, exactly. So those were those ideas are floating around in this first century. Right. You, you wonder if there's this idea of light as being as being good. Um, well, and clearly in the prologue, you know, John says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness I, I like to translate it has not overcome it. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a it's a dual emphasis there. The word kind of has a dual meaning. Either the the darkness has not comprehended the light, or the darkness has not overcome it. And I think mm-hmm. it's meant to be both. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was a long way to get into. This is a huge theme in John. Clean. I think in John's in John's gospel, it's even it's it's made into a major idea. Major idea. Yeah. Well, yeah. and that's I think that's huge. Um, I think that's huge because I think it has comes it comes to us at so many different levels both a you know we already talked a sensory experience as well as a philosophical experience as as whatever is going on yeah um, well and for john you know the the light shines in the in the darkness jesus says i am the light of the world you exactly. know and, but yet at the same time you know in the prologue that light that shines in the darkness is the life that jesus brings right to all those who trust in him and who are born of God. Right, right. And, and and so this again is another theme, this this idea of being born of God. It it ties in with who Jesus is. Yes. In the prologue. Yes. And only in the prologue. Right. But then later on, I mean in in you have this idea of being born from above in John 3. You know, I I I cringe every time I hear the phrase born again because uh-huh. you know, even though the King James translators translate it that way, um, uh, all all New Testament Greek specialists will tell you the phrase means born from above. Right. And so well, it's, it's, yeah. it's sort of synonymous with being born of God here in the program. Right. But uh, here, how huge this is, and to associate light with life with Jesus, this is central and core to our theology. Yeah. Yeah. And without it, without the book of John, I think these things are there, but I think we would have trouble articulating it. Right. I mean, and, and then again, John articulated some things that really have defined our theology and shaped our theology in significant ways. And I think in that respect, it's important for us to recognize that this is the contribution John makes to our Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's, let's, let's move on a little bit um, and, and talk about this, this word flesh, because <laughs> this, is a, this is a real problem for our reformers, and, and, and I think it can be a problem for us today as well. Well, and it would have been problematic in that day and time, too. Um, So, as I mentioned, in the Greek world, um, they had a concept of a logos that was somewhat divine, but the idea that the logos would become flesh would have been reprehensible to them. To them, flesh was a prison that they longed to be set exactly. free from. That- and even in the Jewish world, while whereas we're in the Jewish world, flesh was not necessarily a negative concept. Nevertheless, flesh... You know, flesh withers and fades like grass. Flesh right. is temporary. Flesh is mortal. Uh, the idea that 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 God would would become flesh would, would have just been sense? a non sequitur. It just yeah. would have just it would not have computed to them to them. Yeah. So you know, this is this is a, a catching point. What give us give us a little bit of background in in the Greek word for flesh? Well, in in the Old Testament, flesh. Uh, simply the, the, the Greek word tra- that translates uh, flesh in the Old Testament, it simply refers to our embodiment, our physical createdness. What, what, you know, what is that? What is that word? in the, Basar. Basar. In Hebrew. And so, yeah. and it's translated directly into the Greek. As sarks. As sarks. Yeah. So those two are put together. And it's not necessarily a negative concept. It just simply is our createdness, is an embodied createdness, and you know it is a mortal it is a mortal existence mm-hmm. in contrast to the word of god which endures forever which endures flesh forever. withers and fades like the grass and i think you can see as we talk about the complexities of this why the concept of jesus as being fully divine and fully human becomes such a sticking point oh, of course in oh, our theology course. not only today but in the reformation and in the early church fathers which we'll talk about later but um so i'm kind of pushing alan for his um his background in terms of, of, of the of the words used here and and also for this kind of both Greco-Roman and Jewish background. Now, in the, in the New Testament, 
sarks can be can have a range of meanings Mm -hmm. it can it can simply refer to our embodied created existence but it can i remember just i'm a beginner greek so i'll apologize i just remember learning body for sarks right yeah right and and in that sense it's a fairly neutral word Mm -hmm. uh however flesh also can can refer to um uh, paul uses it in some very nuanced ways and it can refer to um, the human body under the power of sin. Wow. And even, in my opinion, and this is, and I got this from Bultmann's Theology of the New Testament, by the way, and I, in my opinion, a lot of New Testament translators miss this when they translate uh, uh, sarks as, as sinful nature. That's one of my pet peeves. It, it is. Because, because sarks in, in Paul is contrasted with the spirit, and it's almost like a personification of the power of sin. So, I, you know, I would translate it as the power of sin. So you have this whole range, really, in, mm-hmm. in the New Testament, from just simply the body, body as a neutral concept, all the way to flesh as this almost personification of a cosmic power of sin that, what a, that opposes God's spirit. Yeah. And yet I hear, as we're in this discussion, there's this overall, if we have to, if we have to, if we have to draw, tally this, a negative concept of flesh. Uh, in the Greek world, definitely. P- the people who came from a Greek concept text who were in John's community would have heard this with, with some negative implications because flesh was a prison house right. that they longed right. to be released That's from. That's that platonic right. um, uh, background idea. there, that exactly. idea, right? Exactly. And of course, being a female... You get that even more because you're obviously, you know, below men for right. your base, right. <laughs> base fleshiness. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that his that the readers of his gospel from a Jewish background would have assumed this that 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 flesh was was evil, but they would have been startled. Some of them might have been a bit startled by the concept that the divine logos became flesh. I think that would so have too. Them. That that would have pushed them a lot. That yeah. would have been really, um, you know. This is off topic a little, but I I was blessed to to study with a, a Muslim man who was really um, he really could not grasp the concept of Trinity and sure. that, that God could be man. That for him just didn't ring true. It wasn't until we read actually some of the uh, uh, medieval theologians that he began to be able to conceive of I some see. of the thoughts behind cool. yeah uh, wow. of how yeah. this could be well so, and he, he would have been representative of of the typical jewish mindset it, i think it, in and, that day. yeah and of course he was muslim but the the, the jewish mindset would be the yep. same way how yep. can god be flesh so yeah. that john does this and 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 provides us this language is again just central to the faith yeah, it, and it is, it is, and it's, it's, it's the theme, that's really the main theme of the prologue is, I think, in verse 14. The Logos, which is divine, which is God, which, through whom God created the world, the Logos who brought uh, life as the light of the world to us all, this Logos became flesh and dwelled among us. That is the heart of of the of the prologue of John's gospel and it is obviously one of the key affirmations of the Christian faith that the, you know the divine son of god became fully human and and that's <laughs> it's it's a challenge even for us to wrap our heads around but that is the message of the prologue um, and it's interesting because the pro, the prologue here says that that the Logos didn't become any human flesh. He became um, a human whose glory was that of the only begotten or the one of a kind from the Father, and that glory was discernible. Um, he was, and, and it was discernible in that he was full of grace and truth. And so it's interesting that some of the other themes in the prologue are also developed. And, we might, and, and truth is a theme that's in, in John's gospel, but we don't find grace Anywhere else in John's gospel. Wow. We don't even find cognate words like mercy. We don't find any of those words used anywhere in John's gospel. Right. And so uh, it's an an interesting kind. It, again, it kind of points to the idea that whoever is responsible for the final form of John's gospel may have composed this prologue. So, again, it's a little bit interesting that the prologue of John here wants us to see that, that Jesus... The incarnate word, the incarnate right. logos, 
was was unique. Now, and they use the word monogenese. Yes, yes. is typically is you know yeah. traditionally translated the only begotten son. He's the only begotten. A lot of people these days will point out that that word is typically used both in the Septuagint and in the and in the New Testament simply to mean only one or one and only or unique, like for an only son. I don't think that works here. I would agree okay. that in ninety nine percent of the cases. Monogonese simply means only one. Only one. Okay. But okay. Uh, here, I think I mean, you've got this idea of, of, of becoming sons of God or children of God, as mm-hmm. it's translated in verse 12. So you've got that idea there. And, and you've got this idea that this Logos was God and he became flesh. And so you, the, the larger framework, yeah. the, the yep. conceptual framework of the, of the prologue, I think points right. us toward uh, seeing this as, an, as a unique use of monogenes, contra, contrary to what we find elsewhere. And I think okay. where we see that yeah. reflected is in, is in verse 18, the last verse. Because um, the last verse says, no one has ever seen God, right? but the only begotten God has made him known. The prologue is about telling us that this Logos, who was divine, became flesh, right. and this only begotten God made God known to yes. us. Yes. I think in, in, in support of that idea, you have, there, there is a variant reading that's pretty significant. Oh. Uh, the majority text uh, of, of, the New, of the Greek New Testament, the majority of New Testament manuscripts reads, the only begotten Son has yeah. made him known. Not the only begotten God. Oh, tell tell us a little bit more about those majority texts. Um, where where are those texts? I guess I'm thinking is in terms of this has come to help us define what our creeds will be, right? Sure, sure. Where are these? Where are so these we at? have about five thousand um, manuscripts in the Greek that are either copies of the New Testament as a whole or portions thereof. Okay, and they're stored all over the world in libraries, you know, in various places. Um, we have access to uh, photographic facsimiles of some of them. I have a I have a, fo- a copy of Codex Beza, which is abbreviated D in the textual ver- in the textual apparatus of the Greek New Testament. Um, our critical Greek New Testaments they right, reference right, right. them when they when they when they talk about variant readings in the Greek New Testament. And so, the majority of the manuscripts were written later. They form what was called the Textus Receptus or the Received Text. It was basically the text that Erasmus put together and became the Received Text. Sure, sure, sure. And um, over the course of several hundred years, New Testament scholars discovered these some better and earlier manuscripts. And through the process of comparison, we we can determine which ones do a better job of perhaps staying more faithful mm. to the original. Um, and there's some kind of logical guidelines. So for example, okay. in this case, it makes more sense that a scribe would have originally seen the only begotten God and would have tra- changed that to the only begotten son. It doesn't make a lot of sense right. that a scribe would have seen the only begotten son and would have changed that to the only begotten God, because that's called the more difficult reading. Right. And it would be the reading that explains the origin of the others. Yeah. And so you yep, use some yep. logical processes to try to understand which was which was better. And so given those given those observations then we can know that there are certain manuscripts of John's gospel that are earlier and okay. are and are and are more accurate and although all of those okay. support okay. uh the reading Good. the only begotten God. Good. And I I, I push this issue um and, and, and the reason I really like that Alan can tell us all of this is because sometimes I'll see people reference something and said, well, yes, but there's this other, uh, there's other manuscript out there that has this other translation. And I think if you really want to be true to being good Bible scholars, you've got to rely on our experts at Greek to, and to identify which of those sources are really the most accurate. So um, I, I think this is important because this is so central to our theology. Yes, it is. And I, I do believe that the, that the original reading and the best reading here is the only begotten God. And, and not just on theological grounds, but on, on grounds of the manuscript evidence. We have evidence that supports this. But on the other hand, I would also say only begotten God is probably one of the best uh, summaries of this whole prologue and the, and the theme of the word made flesh you could come up with. I mean, think about it. It's a very succinct summary of the whole uh, message here is that mm-hmm. Jesus is 
this word who became flesh, Jesus is the only begotten God who makes God known yeah. to us. And that's, I think that's huge because in our logical world, we struggle with understanding this. Yep. And, yep. and, and I, I, think, I think part of our problem, and this is also anticipating maybe later discussion, part of our problem is that we, we have a hard time with what to make of, of things like incarnation. And as I've said, as I've said many times, um, the New Testament has a very functional Christology. The New Testament has a very functional view of the Trinity. Um, and, and so the purpose is made clear here. The only begotten God, Jesus, the Logos, became flesh to make God known to us. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that here, when we talk about a, a concept of a theology of incarnation, the idea is that Jesus truly reveals to us who God is. And we can, we can count on that. And I think that's perhaps the main takeaway that the, those yeah. who are responsible for the prologue of John's gospel want us to come away with. Now, you know, my favorite Reformed theologian, Jürgen Moltmann. <laughs> we takes know who it, that is now, right? Yes, we do. <laughs> takes it a step further, and, and he wants to look at it in terms of, of not just a functional trinity or just uh, in terms of, of, of what God does for us, but also the essential trinity, who God is. And so, for example, he, 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 he addresses the question of, did Jesus become flesh? Did the Word become flesh primarily in order to accomplish salvation? Was that the primary intention? Or was this something that was integral, integral to God's character and to God's, God's being as self-communicating love? Mm -hmm. And he says basically, he says it's the latter, that, that um, uh, this is a part of an expression of the eternally self-communicating love of God. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, I would agree with that. I don't think the New Testament doesn't go there. Right. The New Testament is very functional in its Christology and in its, in its Trinitarian ideas. But I do think Moltmann is right to say that um, what we have here basically is that um, the God who is love and love in Trinity in the incarnation is opening that bond of love yeah. to include us all. Yeah. I, and and that's a to me that's that's huge. <laughs> that, I think that's huge, and I would agree with with Multiband's, um uh, understanding there. I think that makes sense when you're looking, you know, when you're looking to broader context of who God's ultimately re revealed God's self to be. Yeah, um, is love. Yeah. So uh, I mean, it totally makes sense. I think it all kind of starts to click together. You know, we talk about theology and systematic theology is make working all together, and mm -hmm. and this is one of those those pins that helps helps pin it all together sure yeah. i think so thank you all right thank you well we're back friends uh, for round two of what may be a bit of a marathon session today because we're digging into some pretty deep stuff um, so I'm going to take turns now and uh, ask Christy about her in-depth knowledge of the Reformers. So Christy, let's just start off. How did the Reformers uh, approach the Gospel of John? Well, the Reformers loved the Gospel of John. <laughs> and, Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good question. And as Alan's talking about, we're going to go on a marathon. Well, they did also. Just to give you an idea, um, I, I captured these details, but between 1470 there's a little pre-Reformation, but still kind of Reformation ideas are starting to kind of be put out there. And 1555, there are 42 commentaries written on John. Of those, 31 were actually Reformation, you know, 1517, wow. So we're talking about a lot of stuff. And I tried to dig through a lot of stuff just to, you know, kind of introduce to you what the Reformers were thinking. But this is a big deal for them and they they loved this gospel so i mean i think it's i think it's significant to how they how important this gospel was to them and i think you know it reflects today how important it is to us which is so interesting i mean most people when they quote scripture can pull out a few from the book of john mm -hmm. you know um, well and, and you know sadly just to interject in modern new testament studies 
people have shifted away from John because they consider it to be less historical and more theological. Yep. And to me, I don't, I don't really see that as good canonical exegesis. You know, I mean, we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each in, each in and of themselves, we also look at John. John has a voice right, at the table. Right, And uh, exactly, as we all know, as we're preparing for sermons and going through the Revised Common Lectionary that John sprinkled in, yeah. Um, I, and that's I, to me that's a, that's a that's a tragedy. It's unfortunate, yeah. I think, um, at, because I think we tend to underplay its significance. I think what's important, though, is like we have discussed, they do not see this as being um, contrary to the synoptic gospels. They they feel that it um, enhances it, as, as as John Calvin would say. Um, John exhibits um, God's soul. So mm. the other ones really kind of, they tell us about the incarnation, but this one shares the, the soul. Um, what, what the Reformation found out, as, and I've mentioned this before, well, once people get reading the Gospels, they'll come to the same conclusions. Well, they don't. And, and what happens is Reformation people start to fall into the same heresies mm. that you saw in the medieval world, which you saw in the early, in the early church, yeah, and frankly, yeah. which we see today, unfortunately. Yes, we do. Um, still do. Which we still do. So they are very, very careful um, to try to, to give a one consistent message of God that is pushing through the Gospels. John comes from a different lens, um, but they say that's okay. Um, and I would agree with yeah. them on that, yeah. Definitely, uh, that's okay, and they uh, they recognize this um, really important um, for the divinity of Christ. That's yeah. and and we see, and I pushed Alan on this earlier, but we see the the really the formation of a lot of our our Nicene and Chalcedonian um, fathers in in this and how we understand the Trinity and how we understand the nature of Christ, really coming out of this portion of John. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they they probably I can I can that makes sense mm-hmm. that they would draw on this for that. They absolutely do. Um and uh, so one of their when you read through the commentaries in particular, you see them really talking about John um writing this as as they see to combat the heresies of his time. Uh, um like the Ebionites yes. for example. But or the Gnostics, yeah. Or, or the Gnostics. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't see that mentioned as much, oddly enough. Really, but you would think so. Um, I would think I would think that that John would be more interested in Gnosticism than in the Ebionites you because would the Ebionites so. were a very small sect. And let me why don't we go ahead and define who the Ebionites were for folks who may not know? This was a sect that was um, denying the. Um, um, the divinity of Christ. Yeah, they saw yeah. Jesus as as only human. As only human. Yeah, exactly. he was. He was. He was. The, the, the highest of all the prophets. He was the Messiah, exactly. but he was a human Messiah. He was a Messiah. human but Messiah. Yeah. And meanwhile, the Gnostics were ones that claimed they had secret knowledge and that they were like given this um, inside insider's view of, of who God really is. Well, and, and for them, spiritual. for them, Jesus was fully divine. Fully and divine. Only, and the reason why, well, the, some of the Gnostics were called docetists because right. They argued that that Jesus only seemed to become yeah, human. seemed to become human exactly. So <laughs> there's all these different heresies, and, and I I always joke and and think about, but most of the heresies have to do with the nature of Christ. Yeah. you know when you yeah, think about that's it, right. oh, that's and right. and really it comes down to the present day um, as does. we are trying to understand and wrap our, our brains around who who Jesus really is, and um, even though it's defined for us. Um, over and over and over, um, John becomes really central for our understanding, which is why some of those nuances that Alan pointed out, I think, are so important for our understanding of, of who Christ is. Elaborate on that. What do you? What do you? What I'm wondering. I'm curious as to what you mean by that. Well, I I, I think when we talk about, for example, in in the Scripture, the God of God. Um, oh, like the only begotten about, God. Only begotten God. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's a huge part part for us to understand that Jesus is God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he is also begotten also and truly right. flesh. Yeah. But there's still, even in the language of God and Son, there's a tendency to do kind of a, well, then he's lesser than, because the mm-hmm. Son is under subordinationism, subordinationism which right. we see, we see it in the Arian tradition. Also a heresy that was Also that was a heresy, it's huge, right? <laughs> yeah. So when you go back to the early earliest manuscripts, like Alan talked about, and you're talking about um, begotten of God, then you've got this um, this idea that, 
that Jesus is God. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it like it like solidifies that in our in our understanding. Mm-hmm. Now, our reformers would not have had all of these ancient resources that we have access to today. I mean, a lot of these Surely. have been discovered over the years. Surely. And they would have probably been working with a with a text that said the only begotten Son they, yes. has made him. No one I, has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son right. has made him right. known, uh, because that was probably the text that they had at that time. That probably was. We do know, however, that it was through the you know it, when we head back into the 15th century, we do know that many more texts became available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we run into our friend Erasmus. Um, of Rotterdam and, and uh, Desiderius Erasmus is such an important figure for this text. Um, uh, now, to give you a framework for him, first of all, uh, a little bit um, contemporary with Luther, he and anyone who was anybody in Europe at this time is going to be corresponding with Erasmus. Mm. Now, Calvin is Calvin's not born until 1509. And Erasmus dies in 1536. So they overlap a little while. Um, but Calvin was a young hothead <laughs> at that point. You think? And, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he uh, he's, he's not as much in the conversation. But Luther, in particular, is very involved with Erasmus and any of the other humanists at the time. And Erasmus has written his, his Greek New Testament because he's gotten access to these ancient Greek texts. And so um, Erasmus is a huge piece, and most people that read Erasmus read a reformer, but he actually remains Roman Catholic mm-hmm. um, to the end. And so he's kind of an interesting figure because you kind of expect him to jump on board the actual, um, what will actually become the break of the church, and he doesn't. He, he, he holds back, and, and many are critical of him for it. Um, but also, you have to think about there's people like Martin Bootser and Philip Langson that are continuing through their lives to try and reunite the Roman Catholic Church with the really yeah oh, oh absolutely wow absolutely in fact Melanchthon gets in trouble from the reformers for becoming too Catholic wow. in, in some of his theology mm. as he's trying to find commonalities between them and and yeah. so um there's a lot of attempt by this by these particular people calvin's really not in that scene yeah. um uh, i wouldn't think so no he's really not um but but he's in conversation with people that are um hmm. but of course i mean he's, he's obviously in conversation with bootser but he 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 remains he he's not really in in that kind of reconciling um mindset and i think it's because he's younger hmm. um than these folks. But um, one of the things that Erasmus did in this is, um, was he took this idea of logos, this, this word, and he, he, he changed it. Um, he changed its, its understanding from being a one-time thing, which in Latin was verbum, into sermo. Um, and verbum, word, that's how Luther translated to sermo. And the idea of the ser the sermo was reflecting this ongoing dialogue between father and son. So in other words, that the word is continually talking to us. It's just in the, something that happened is this amazing, and the word became flesh and boom, but the word became flesh that this is now part of God's revelation to us. So every mm. time that Jesus speaks, it is it is God. And so every time that that. A living Christ is with us today. It mm. is God. So this mm. kind of um, this kind of constant presence, as opposed to like this, like historical this presence. historical presence. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. And that's a huge idea. And this becomes adopted by the reformers, kind of across the board. Well, yeah, it, make, it, make, it reminds me of Luther's idea of preaching as the word of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think this this conceptually is really big, and is is also then comes into sacramental theology. So, you know, what happens when the bread and the wine, do they magically Mm -hmm. turn into Mm -hmm. the body and blood of Christ? But rather that this is this ongoing uh, presence of God that is, as Luther would say, in and through the elements Uh or or even represented, as Calvin would say, um, um, spiritually. Yes, yes. And so um, this becomes a big part then of the entire... uh, entire framework of of reformation understanding of the presence of god really mm-hmm. wow mm. so as big as this is for us us it's big for the 
reformers. And I sure. think we see in this our traditions coming our tradition that, that comes through the Reformation and some of these things that they have introduced become at least part of our, you could see that, if you will, that historical development of the uh, of the theology of the ideas, you know, and then, of course, someone like Moltmann that comes in and, and, and is providing an even broader understanding. So it sounds like for them, the significance that the word was made flesh is the ongoing revelation of God's um, yes. Uh, character, message, you know. Yes, you to articulated us. that very clearly. That's exactly um, what it was. Um, I want to point out another one other little piece from the reformers um, that comes in this, and I think I think is is because in reading John, um, you have to come at reading John through the rule of faith. You have to have mm-hmm. some ex- acceptance of Jesus as your and, Savior. And remind us what the rule of faith is. The rule of faith is, uh, you know, belief in the incarnation, right? Well, and, and, and beyond that, it, it's 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 the consensus, the doctrinal consensus of the church, basically. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. So that this has to be in place as you're reading through as you're reading through John, and I suspect. I suspect a little bit of that is um, comes comes as some of our our Anabaptist folks come in and they kind of pull things apart in their own strange ways. Sure. And I wish I could give you uh, when I was looking at that, it was kind of interesting because they <laughs> they're so inconsistent um, as to how they understand everything. But they're they're really um, they're really ready to understand this in very very different ways. Some mm. of them are, and so. Um, the rule of faith and the confidence in um, in God's gift of, mm-hmm. of, of Christ. And, uh, yeah, again, fighting the heresies, I guess. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, faith in the in the doctrinal um, understanding in, in the Nicene and, and Chalcedonian formulations. So. Sure. So, you know, I mentioned the, the I mentioned Moltmann and how he, he saw the significance of the incarnation as not just uh, sort of a remedy for, uh, for sin, but rather it was integral to God's being as love and the revelation mm-hmm. of God's being. Did they have any kind of concept of that? or Because or, my superficial recall of reading the Institutes was that Jesus was God incarnate in order to be able to save us from our sins. Yeah, I didn't see anything about love in there. I, I think, especially Cal- Calvin wouldn't be there. I think Luther often looked at the gospel through love. I mean, that was mm-hmm. kind of his, his ammo, right? You know, right. He, he had, uh, you know, when you think about Luther's symbol, I right. don't know um, if everyone, the listeners are familiar with Luther's, basically his printing symbol. I mean, it was, it was a cross, a black cross on a heart. Right. And then that heart was on um, a, a white rose. Right. So this whole idea of love being central to the gospel was definitely part of Luther, not so much part of Calvin because here you, you don't, Love isn't in scripture. You, you already mm. mentioned that. Calvin's not going to add that in um, to the space, even even if he believes that it is maybe an overwhelming thing. It, it's not. It's not his principle. Mm. It's mm. at least in this, it would be kind of an kind of an addition there. And I, I, I think I, I wonder. I'm just I'm speculating out loud. Maybe I wonder if that's one of the reasons why modern people have such a problem with Calvin is because of the way he comes across. I, I think so. Well, we've talked a lot before is the biggest problem with Calvin today is, in my opinion, that we've had more extreme groups try to define him in things like Tulip, which is so unfair to a reformer that is a much broader thinker than that. You're talking about someone who's written volumes of works and you're defining him in, in, in you know, five, five little in pieces. five phrases, total depravity, yeah. unconditional election, limited atonement, exactly. um, well, irresistible at, grace, and perseverance of the saints. Spoken like a former seminary professor <laughs> yeah that's it's such a, it's 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 such an unfair look at a person that has a much bigger theological um, understanding than that and that becomes part of the piece um, well but, and I you know I've mentioned this before but uh, you know my first introduction to Calvin was reading the Institutes and I'll have to confess I didn't find the Institutes particularly enlightening well but, but then later 
I discovered the commentaries. The commentaries. And mm-hmm. I was I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I think you have to look at you have to look at Calvin as Calvin the pastor versus Calvin the administrator. And mm-hmm. there's a lot about the institutes that are about administration. They're mm-hmm. about making the church work. And And that's the way it sounds. It comes across as sort of like rules for church life. It, oh, absolutely. It's exactly exactly what they were. And as he is moving through and some of his responses aren't things of things that have happened. Remember he gets booted mm-hmm. out of Geneva and then they beg him to come back. Mm-hmm. And so how do you make your church work? And I think these are problems that we all have. I mean, sure. we have our pastor hat and and then we have to put on, you know, if you're a Presbyterian minister, your moderator hat. Well, that's mm-hmm. a really different space. Mm-hmm. And I, we see that in Calvin. And so yeah, Calvin's a, he's a much deeper person than I think we give him credit for. And I think that's mm-hmm. true of all of these sure. reformers. And sure. I, and I, you know, I've been thinking about this <laughs> maybe lately, I guess, in terms of elections, we tend to go back and look through someone's history 40 years ago and say, oh, he's an evil person because of one comment he made mm-hmm. politically 40 years ago. And I'm thinking, OK, but we have to, as Christians, allow people to grow and understand and change and move. And I think we can say that true of an immature Calvin versus a mature Calvin. You know, mm-hmm. we and and that that he does grow and his theology grows and, and that there's space there for growth. Sure. So, yeah, I hope that's helpful with your Reformation background, and we'll come back and and talk about some other stuff. That's awesome. Thanks, yeah, Christine. Thanks. Hi, we're back. And we're just going to have a short little ending section because we have been talking for quite a while today, but we really wanted to come back with why this is important. Um, and so you have some some ideas to come away with um, that you can bring to your congregation. So I'm just going to say, Alan, what, are the, what do you think are the main pieces we need to send them home with? Well, I think incarnation is something that modern people get hung up on and they think that it's just not believable and i think the problem is they're thinking in terms of the apostles creed born of the virgin and so so if you if you make incarnation about biology it becomes a stumbling stone for people i don't think the new testament makes incarnation about biology now i i will say this the new testament wants to insist that jesus really and truly became fully human and you know jesus really and truly was equal to god fully god but jesus really and truly became fully human and shared our humanity completely Mm -hmm. except for the fact that he never sinned he never sinned right right. (laughs) so so the new testament wants to insist on that but but um, as I said before, the New Testament's take on Christology, the New Testament's take on things like Trinity, the New Testament's take on incarnation is essentially functional. So here in the prologue, we have one of the major emphases I see in the New Testament, and that is that the incarnation means that Jesus really and truly does show us who God is. Mm-hmm. And so we can take what Jesus has shown us and we can, we can take that and, and build on that our foundation of how we understand God. Exactly. And um, I think part of that, what we see, and I think Jürgen Moltmann has it just right, is love. Yes, indeed. You yes, know, indeed. And, and that God is a God of love. That God is a God of love. And that love is something that is eternally self-communicating. Exactly. God doesn't just communicate his love to us as a sort of an emergency measure to deal with sin. That exactly. is who God has always been from eternity. Exactly, exactly through eternity, and um, when you think about that, like an ontological trinity, that this is also embedded in this as well. This, this, this God has always been mm-hmm. who God is. This is not. Mm-hmm. It's not just what God does for us. Right. It is, and how God relates to us. It's who God is. In God's very being. Essentially in God's very being. Exactly. And not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, which we hear, no, no, that this is God, who God is, the God I am from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. through Jesus Christ, through now. From eternity past to eternity, you know, world without end, amen, amen. (laughs) Amen, amen. (laughs) And so... um, Now, there there are a couple other themes in the New Testament. One is that um, affirming the incarnation means that Jesus shows us that God really and truly embraces our humanity. 
So, and this is where, uh, you know, Moltmann also kind of shines in the crucified God because he insists that, that uh, you know, God is the one who is, is taking on all of our human um, suffering, uh, all sin, all, mm-hmm. all that defines us as human. God is taking that on himself and into himself. Right. And that this, um, to some extent, it makes a difference in God's being. And so it's not that God changes so much as that God takes our human existence into God's self, and that is a, that is a lasting part of who God is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, the way the New Testament phrases it more functionally is in Hebrews that, you know, we know that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, that Jesus understands. And so I think if we're seeing right. Jesus then as the incarnation of God, right. then we can say God understands. God understands. God understands what we're going uh, through, and He because He has embraced our our humanity fully. It, and that is that is huge. And I've said that it this way. Huge. I've said it this way. You know, God has entered fully into our human experience exactly. in order to heal it from the inside exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me of all these folks that say, "Eh, God doesn't really care about <laughs> wrong. Me. God doesn't really care about what's going on," and that's just. The opposite. God cared enough to go to the cross exactly. in the person of Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and if you if you mm-hmm. live into that, that really can change your outlook on life. That mm-hmm. can really that can really give you a hope that maybe you're missing. And I think I think that's missing sometimes from our, our modern sermons. I think we're looking for all these other things. But if people can hear hope, that's uh, that's the centerpiece yes, towards indeed people healing and people living their lives to the fullest. When, when you see God in Jesus on the cross, um, in, you know, embracing all of our brokenness, embracing all of our pain, there's no question that God cares. Exactly. <laughs> God cares enough to take our suffering into, him, into God's self. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then finally, the New Testament does emphasize that the incarnation is important because it shows us that in Jesus... God has done all that needs to be done to truly redeem us all. God has taken on our brokenness exactly. fully in order to heal us all. I mean, you know, there, there is another question I think out there, and that is, it's, for, it's, it's phrased in various ways, but it's sort of, why would God want to have anything to do with someone like me? Or why would God, you know, I'm, I'm past salvation. Oh, I'm, I hear I'm, that all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm past salvation. Enough, you I'm know, not good enough. There's yep. no way I'm going to go to heaven because I'm too, you know, I'm too whatever. And, you know, the New Testament insists, nope, nope. Right. God in Jesus has, has embraced our humanity fully and, and has done everything that needs to be done to redeem us all. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's and it's it's a done deal, and it's it's you know I I I'm, you know I probably said this before. I love the benediction that Desmond Tutu gives. There's nothing you can do to God, make God love you more. There's nothing you can right. do to make God love you less. And exactly. incarnation stands behind that affirmation. Yeah, that's right. That's and that and that and that's huge. And embracing that that's that's life in a different way. Mm-hmm. And. You know, when you talk about today, and I'm seeing everyone in stress, and of course, we're recording this a little early, friends, so we're recording this right at the um, elections. We're trying to learn who's, who's won the election. We're in the heat of the coronavirus. We're watching California and Colorado and Oregon burn down. There is so much stress right now, um, and I'm hearing all this other stuff, but I am not hearing bringing this to the cross and bringing this to the feet of God. Mm-hmm. and the people that can let go of those voices and really, really live into the the, the love and hope of God sure. are living a different life right now. Sure. They're living because they they understand that they are are agents of God's peace, mm-hmm. and that's a real difference. Um, yes, and that's why this is so central to me. Incarnation is. Man, it is like one of the most exciting parts of the gospel. Oh yeah! If we oh, really absolutely. get the point of it, it's, it's, it's like, not about some philosophical debate. It's not about things. biology. It's about theology. It's yes. a theological affirmation that the God who is love, right, truly, you know, is the one whom Jesus revealed him to be. Uh, truly, 
uh, has embraced our humanity yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, truly yeah. has done all that is necessary to redeem us all. Exactly. I mean, other concepts of God and other traditions don't come down to the people. That's a that's a theology worth shouting over. <laughs> salvation, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and spreading the news and the joy and the gospel is is what I've been called to do. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I brought that quote from Moltmann in because, you know, what he's trying to say is this wasn't just a plan B. This wasn't just an emergency stopgap measure on God's part. This was always a part always. of who God was. Yep who God is from eternity past right. to, etern- to eternity future. You know, exactly. it, is, it is who God is. Exactly. And, and always will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Christy. Bye. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.